Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by Bugsnag. Bugsnag is mission control for software quality. And on this segment, I'm talking with James Smith, co-founder and CEO of Bugsnag, about the core problem they're solving for software teams and why you should head to bugsnag.com changelog to test it out with your team. Let's start with, um, you mentioned you and Simon. So you, you guys obviously at one point didn't have this company, right? So as founders, as engineers, you got to a problem. What was that problem? Why does Bugsnag exist? Uh, Simon and I, my co-founder, I met in college. We went off to build software for other companies. I ended up in a startup. He ended up in enterprise software. And we had the same problem in both of these companies. When things break, it's really hard to figure out how badly they're broken, who's impacted, and what to fix first. So we both had this problem ourselves. So we decided, hey, why is no one doing a good job of fixing this problem right now? So very much Bugsnag was born out of uh, scratching our own itch, as they say. One thing that we find all the time is that there's this tension in software teams or in product companies where you want to deliver new features to your customers or you want to build cool new stuff. But at the same time, you've got to fix bugs because no matter how good a coder you are, you're going to introduce bugs. But there's no clear definition of where to set that slider. Should I... Uh, be fixing bugs now or should I be releasing features? And so this tension exists, I think, in all product teams, all software teams. If you don't have a tool like Bugsnag, it's very difficult for you to figure out where to spend time. And so that's the idea here is we're trying to help teams understand whether they should be building or fixing because there's a bit of a delicate balance between both. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So if your team is unsure of how to spend their time building or fixing, Give Bugsnag a try. It's free to get started with a 45-day extended trial exclusive to our listeners at thebugsnag.com slash changelog. You're listening to The Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, editor-in-chief of Changelog. On today's show, we're talking with Chris Beams about BISC, an open source desktop application that allows you to buy and sell Bitcoins in exchange for national fiat currencies or also alternative cryptocurrencies. We get some background on the issues faced by cryptocurrency exchanges like Coinbase and the now defunct Mt. Gox. We also discuss whether or not Bitcoin is a censorship resistant payment system and what it means to have anonymous transaction currency options out there. BISC also has an interesting white paper about its own DAO to support contributors. And we discuss that in full detail at the end of this episode. Chris, uh, we're talking about BISC, previously BitSquare. Why don't you tell us uh, about the naming and, and why y'all decided to change it? Yeah, so the, the project has been around now for about three and a half years, and uh, most of that time it's been under the name BitSquare, which uh, people may have heard of if they've been around the, bit, the Bitcoin space at all. And the reason that it was called BitSquare in the beginning was because it was kind of a play on the idea of uh, what's come to be known as uh, Satoshi Squares. In the, in the Bitcoin world. And so what Satoshi Squares were, people might know the name Satoshi, like Satoshi Nakamoto, the founder of, uh, you know, the creator of Bitcoin. And people would uh, form Satoshi Squares, which were in-person uh, opportunities to 
to exchange Bitcoin for whatever their local currency was, dollars or, or euros or what have you. And they were just informal things, right? And so that's where the name came from was BitSquare, uh, a, a, a way of having Satoshi Square-like interactions, peer-to-peer exchange of Bitcoin for national or fiat currency, but not having to do it in actual physical meat space, right? Uh, you know, doing it, doing it online, doing it on a proper peer-to-peer network. Um, and then earlier this year, we changed the name because BitSquare uh, was a potential overlap with a certain uh, trademark holding financial services company uh, that people might be able to guess the name of because uh, BitSquare's name kind of intersects with it. <laughs> and they, they asked us nicely if we might change the name. And so we did. And we just shortened it down to BISQ. BISC, which is kind of an abbreviation of the original BitSquare, and it's a relatively, you know, unusual and sort of Google-friendly name and so on. So that's how we got there. When you rename something like that, you often lose some people in that. How how long ago was this rename, and, and what is the, the downfall, I guess, of a rename? Yeah, that was, that was uh, I, of course, the process itself takes a while, but it was happening uh, starting around April of, of this year. And I'm, I'm not sure that we've, that we've lost, lost so many people per se, but it is something that there's, there's just a cost to it, right? Because you have to continually repeat the fact that it's been changed and you're uh, always in the business of saying BISC parenthetically, formerly known as BitSquare, right? So uh, just the introduction of the project, uh, much like the conversation we're having right now, it takes a while, right? Mm-hmm. Because you want to make sure to bring people into the fold that like had heard of the project before under its previous name and so on. Um, but in general, it's been, it's been okay. Uh, one thing that helped there is that uh, it, it, while the project has been around in, under development for three and a half years, roughly, as we speak, it's been uh, live in production uh, for about 16, 17 months now. So, uh, so people who had actually been using the application uh, you know, to do live trading, you know, had only known it as BitSquare for just a handful of months at that point. So BISC is an open source desktop app. Not only that, but it's also an exchange network, but it's the formation around it, at least based on your your white paper, the motivation around it is essentially around the censorship, the the different things around the current ways in which you trade Bitcoin. Right. Can you kind of give us the background to 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 some degree of the problem with crypto exchanges like Coinbase, et cetera, different places where you can actually go and do these original squares, which is kind of interesting how that came about. Yeah. So I'll get to um, I'll talk about, you know, um, quote unquote, centralized exchanges in just a second, like you like you talk about. But just to get to first principles, like you're asking, you know, why did we create it the way that, it, that, we, that we did? And, and that's. Um, it, it's it's because it's really modeled after Bitcoin itself, right? So we, we wanted to build the exchange that the Bitcoin network needed uh, in, in our minds. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, Bitcoin itself is this uh, remarkably censorship resistant network. It's really designed as such, right? It's, you know, global. It's at this point, uh, by all accounts, unstoppable, right? It's 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 definitely powered through different governments and different agencies, you know, considering ways to take it down or attack it and so on. We'll probably see lots and lots more of that over the years to come. But for, you know, uh, 
essentially zero downtime on the network since January of 2009. The Bitcoin blockchain has just been uh, running along more or less smoothly, right? And uh, you know, we thought that that's that's exactly the kind of exchange uh, that we wanted to build was something that's just as uh, permissionless, uh, you know, privacy respecting and um, indeed censorship resistant uh, as Bitcoin itself. And uh, what we've seen emerge right since the you know since Bitcoin essentially first got a price, uh, you know, around 2010, the network was running for for you know many months before anybody ever actually exchanged Bitcoin uh, for value. Uh, and uh, pretty much the moment that, that began, the first exchanges started popping up. And if people know anything about this space, they've they they probably know at least the headlines that they read in, in 2013 about the Mt. Gox exchange, which was you know responsible for something like on the order of you know 700 million dollars worth of Bitcoin being stolen. Uh, of course, the reason that that was possible for Bitcoin to be stolen is because when you're dealing with a centralized exchange, meaning, by the way, a website, right? A fundamentally a web app uh, uh, where, you know, where three parties are involved, the person who wants to sell, the person who wants to buy, and the exchange itself. Uh, when things are designed that way, the exchange has to have custodial control over uh, the user's Bitcoin for at least some period of time. Uh, and, and typically, just for reasons of convenience, people would keep their Bitcoin on the exchange for much longer than just the moment that was necessary to, you know, match a trade and, and then uh, it, uh, cash out. Uh, so when Mt. Gox was hacked back then in 2013, uh, something like, you know, the tune of $700 million worth of Bitcoin were under the control of, of Mt. Gox. And that fundamentally means... Uh, um, the private keys that were capable of spending that Bitcoin uh, were in the control of Mt. Gox. So that's basically a great big honeypot, right? It's like there's 700 million reasons that an exchange like Mt. Gox would get hacked. And it's uh, utterly predictable that the, the beatings will continue, right? Uh, if, if, the, if the sort of architecture doesn't change. And of course, that's exactly uh, what's happened, right? You know, over the years, there's been uh, an almost a, a predictable pace of uh, exchanges getting hacked and various amounts getting stolen and so on. It's um, it's just the nature of the beast, right? When there's enough value uh, in a, in a in a given system or location that can be hacked, it probably will be hacked. Uh, and so that's that's always been our motivation. Is is that's the security side of of BISC, right? Is the security of users' funds. We want to make sure that people can actually fulfill the promise of Bitcoin, which is, uh, you know, people sometimes say, be your own bank, right? That you can actually keep custodial control of your own, uh, your own private keys, your own Bitcoin, and you can have as much security as you can manage, right? So, you know, assuming that you have uh, well put together operational security practices, you're using things like hardware wallets or air-gapped computers or, uh, you know, whatever it is that you deem appropriate to secure however many Bitcoin it is that you have, uh, you have that full control, you have that full capability. And, yeah. you know, the BISC application never, never maintains control. It never has uh, the opportunity to steal your funds because it never holds your funds. Uh, it's just between you and your counterparty, essentially.
Yeah, uh, I have a couple of questions breaking off of this. The first one, it's perhaps speculative a little bit with regards to exchanges being hacked, and uh, you know the the analogy between a cryptocurrency exchange having custodial control over your wallet or your your really your keys at that point uh, in order to have access to trade that uh, coin is very similar to banks, right? Like you said, be your own bank well with a Coinbase or a Bitstamp or a Mt. Gox or whatever. You're allowing them to be your bank to a certain degree. And that's problematic. And like you said, the more honey that's in the pot, the more attackers are going to come after those things. I guess my question would be, why don't we have more his, uh, historical banks being hacked? Like our Bank of America and our First National and like now I'm of course putting this in an American context, but um, they are very literally banks and they have online presences and they have web apps. And so why is everybody going after Bitcoin exchanges and not after places where you can get cold hard cash? Um, is it because of, well, I'll just leave it there and see, see what you think. Yeah, I'm certainly not an expert in the in the space of like uh, traditional physical uh, banks getting robbed, but just to to hazard a, a, an answer at this. Yeah, um, I think to some degree, uh, banks do still get robbed. Like you know, literally people coming in and saying, "Put all the money in the bag." Doesn't I, say I don't it's like a physical hack. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I don't think that's a that's a that's a done deal. And I think the reason that that still happens, uh, however high risk that may be, I don't know how many people successfully get away with it. Um, but of course, the reason, as as one famous bank robber was asked, you know, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is, uh, right? <laughs> right. <it> was his <laughs> answer. And, and it is still where the money is, at least to the, to the extent of, you know, uh, uh, cash bills in a, in, in a cashier's drawer. So, so you actually can get the honey out of the pot. But I think when we uh, and, and this is where I'll quickly get out of my depth. So anybody who actually, you know, is working for a bank is my apologies ahead of time. But, you know, I imagine the reason that we don't see people hacking into uh, Bank of America's servers and so on and, and quote stealing all the money right. is because what they're stealing is would be uh, uh, what uh, entries in a database representing uh, transactions. Yeah, representing transactions, representing, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, their kind of fractional reserves and so on. Uh, mm. The money itself, the money itself is not a digital thing, a digital right. asset that can be that can be um, taken away in a bag, if you will, in a digital bag, when, when what's there is actually private keys like files, you know, uh, it, it would also maybe entries in a database, but you know, strings of numbers and letters representing a private key. You can yeah. actually take those and run away and spend the Bitcoin that they have access to, wow. right? That's just, there's no correlate, I think, in the sort of traditional yeah. banking world because it's not fundamentally digital. On that note, though, I mean, I think that in today's world, it's so hard to to see what you're saying there about traditional banking and that you're not actually stealing funds because so much of what we do is removed from actual cash. You know, mm -hmm. we don't often there's some people out there who live by cash and spend only cash, but the large majority of the world relies on some sort of market like you know, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, some sort of credit card type system that ensures secure payments or That's some right. sort of digital way to to do a transaction. So we're in we're, we're so used to not actually spending real cash hand to hand. And so it's hard yeah. to see that, you know, that it's not digital. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it sure feels digital, right? When you log yeah, into yeah. your online banking or swipe your card here or what have you. But uh, but in the end, it's not a natively digital money, right? Which is the the, the big difference. So let's uh, get back to the point about being your own bank, and we'll, we'll branch off into here. And this is where uh, I think BISC is 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 interesting to me as a thing that you guys are doing, and hopefully it's successful. Uh, and what I think is providing the power to decide to more people. Um, because if you 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 look at the trade-offs between a centralized exchange and you say, why are people using these? And you even said it yourself, it's because of the convenience. It's because of the access. And a lot of times that convenience isn't, this is simply easier for me to do, but it's actually accessible in terms of, I don't know how to do it on my own. Uh, it's too difficult. And so this is not just convenient for me, it's actually enabling me to do something that I couldn't do on my own. Um, we've seen a lot of hacks, and we've seen a lot of, you know, uh, even recently Ethereum. I think somebody drained 31 million from the from some Ethereum wallets. Um, you mentioned the big one with Mt. Gox, uh, with Bitcoin. The other thing we see a lot is people losing their own coins, right? Mm. They lose their private keys, and they've got them in three places and in the safety deposit box. And I, I just saw a Reddit thread the other day where a guy still managed to you know, basically lose his entire Bitcoin wallet, which I think was sizable, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. Even even despite all of these different steps you've taken by doing something that I don't, I don't recall the details, but it's really hard. I mean, even for technical people, it's hard to get it right and to keep it right and not uh, lose your your stuff because you're personally a really bad bank, you know? Um, so <laughs> is right. BISC trying to make that easier for for regular Joes? Yeah, yeah, I think it's only going to get uh, uh, you know harder. By the way, I mean you know especially for for people who have uh, growing amounts of value. I mean it, it's it's actually a real challenge to to fully properly secure uh, uh, Bitcoin in any case. So, um, real quick, Chris, can you can you break that down for us and just explain? I've I've assumed our listeners all understand the problem with the keys. Can you just lay it out? Like, what would happen? How can I go about just losing Bitcoin that I have in a personal wallet? Can you just explain that for the, for the listeners? Yeah, yeah, sure. So let's just assume the the simple scenario of you've you've gotten your first Bitcoin wallet. It's a it's a desktop application, and I've sent you some Bitcoin. Yeah, just to to get you started. And so now you have, you know, point point one Bitcoin or something like that sitting in that wallet. And um, five minutes later, uh, your 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 machine uh, melts down, right? And right. You know, the, it's uh, just unrecoverable disk failure. And uh, your time machine hasn't had time to back it up, or you know whatever. You don't have any backup of it. Uh, that wallet on that computer was the only home of the private keys that can that can spend the Bitcoin that I transferred to you. When I transferred the Bitcoin to you. I signed a transaction using my Bitcoin private keys that spent the Bitcoin to your address in that wallet, right? I, I sent it to right. your public address and only that wallet has the private key that can then subsequently sign again and send it to somebody else, right? And so if that private key is gone, your money is gone, 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 gone. Now, there's a little bit better news, right? Uh, these days, right? And for the last number of years, there's been really clever solutions that have come along. Um, when you set up a modern wallet today, if it's a good one, the first thing it's going to uh, walk you through is this process of setting up uh, so-called seed words, 
which are typically a 12-word sequence or sometimes even a 24-word sequence, that uh, those words, in addition, you know, of course, you have a password or whatever that unlocks the wallet. But these words are, are much more powerful than a password because those words alone can actually completely recreate a wallet, including essentially all of the private keys that are necessary to spend that Bitcoin. And that's a really clever uh, you know, piece of engineering and, and, and math uh, that, that makes that possible. But so the, the, the process today uh, is, is people set up a wallet, they get their seed words, and uh, they must write down those seed words like pen and paper, uh, never, ever, ever storing those words on a digital device of any kind, right? Store that piece of paper somewhere utterly secure, right? Whether it's your, you know, bank's uh, safe deposit box or, uh, you know, whatever it is that you deem to be the most secure uh, location that you can possibly imagine. Take a hole in your backyard. (laughs) Right? Yeah. You know, hopefully not co-located with your, not co-located with your machine, you know, not in your, not in your same house and, and, and so on. Right. Um, so, uh, so, so that's, you know, that's getting a little bit closer to the state of the art with, with security around, around. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. You know, a multi-word sequence, is it uh, granted to the person or can they do select it? Like yeah. Does somebody, the, you know, select it or the quick brown fox jumped over the dog or whatever? No, it's generated. It's, it's generated from a, from a kind of a set of words. It has a particular kind of entropy profile wow. that, uh, with 12 words, you have enough, uh, you, you can capture enough, uh, entropy to, uh, to essentially recreate, uh, those private keys. I don't fully understand how it all works. Yeah. I just know that it works. Um, but uh, you, you you definitely don't get to choose, right? Because if you're choosing, that's also generally poor security. Yeah, um, I was thinking like someone will choose a famous quote from a movie and then hackers right. can just use a list of famous things that anybody can easily Google and there's millions of results for, for example, what you said with uh, that's where the money is. If, you know, if you had a phrase like that that was actually 12 or long, 12 <laughs> words versus five, you know, yeah. that might be something that people can store in a text file and just randomly parse it and, you know, brute force. Right. People will just yeah. have the word password 12 times. Password, <laughs> password, password, password. Yeah. People are, people are generally a lot less clever, you know, than we think we are. Right. When it comes, when we're trying to make up a good password, we're, we're far more predictable than we, than we think we are. Is so that I, technology in the wallet or where's that technology at that, that recreation of the wallet? Who, yeah, that, is that in the protocol of Bitcoin, or is that where is that living at? That's that's a that's a Bitcoin standard, right? You know, Bitcoin kind of has this uh, the so-called Bitcoin improvement process. Uh, so you see these proposals get put together about ways to in, enhance the overall Bitcoin uh, ecosystem or Bitcoin protocol or uh, uh, certain things that wallet providers can standardize on like this seed words approach. So that's usually something that's proposed by people who are pretty close, you know, sort of core Bitcoin developers who, who understand what's possible with the technology and they'll write it up, you know, maybe give a presentation on it or something like that. And then uh, often, you know, leave it to the community to kind of pick up the idea and really run with it and, 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 and take it through to, uh, you know, the state that, that that stuff is in now, which is, you know, like a completely accepted standard and anybody, Anybody, you know, d- downloading a, a wallet today should should expect uh, seed word support. It's a, basically a broken wallet if it doesn't if it doesn't support that. And uh, and and just by the way, uh, you know, so the, the kind of 
you know, sort of one ideal profile uh, or, you know, kind of state of the art for security is not just the seed words, but a hardware wallet as well. Um, so you might have the wallet that you that you spend and, you know, maybe people have a wallet on their phone that they keep basically some pocket money in, if you will, you know, enough to whatever it is, you're buying your coffee or uh, paying a friend back or something like that. Uh, and that those wallets will have seed words too, right? So you can you can protect those funds. But when it comes to storing any kind of larger amount, you know, if, what's Bitcoin as we as we speak today, it's around, you know, $4,500 per per coin, right? So if you have, you know, even two or three of these things, much less 10 or 20 or more, uh, you know, that's not anything that you want or need to be carrying around on your person probably, right? Uh, so what people do is store those coins, the larger amounts for sure, in in a hardware wallet, uh, which take different forms, but generally they're devices that can plug in via USB. They have, uh, you know, a, a dedicated, very simple uh, uh, chipsets that are, you know, just exactly for signing Bitcoin transactions and, and storing private keys and so on. Uh, so they're, uh, you know, they can be designed in a very security uh, conscious fashion to make them as, you know, impenetrable as possible. And you, so you see products like uh, uh, Trezor or Nano Ledger or what have you. These are these are hardware wallets that have become quite popular. And when you combine you know, seed words and hardware wallets and, and, and all of this, you can actually begin to fulfill this this promise for yourself of being your own bank. It is possible. But back to, you know, what started this thread of the conversation, it, we're still in pretty rarefied air. Right. This yeah. is, this is uh, not easy for, uh, you know. Uh, grandma or what have you uh, at this point still. And so uh, also to answer the question you asked along the way is, is, is BISC on a, on a mission to make that easier? Uh, frankly, no, <laughs> that's, mm. that's not at all our, our kind of core um, value proposition, if you will. Okay. Of course, it's in our interest to make it as easy as possible. Right. Uh, and, I think so. And, yeah. And I'd like to think that we've done a pretty decent job of that, but given uh, that we're actually adding quite a bit uh, of complexity into the picture, like you said, Coinbase or, uh, you know, Bitstamp or, 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 or any, uh, you know, centralized exchange that people might choose to use today are uh, extremely convenient uh, by comparison to what they were a few years ago and indeed by comparison to BISC. It's a, it's just a, a higher, uh, you know, sort of profile of, in, of engagement that we have to ask the, the, the user to, you know, understand and comprehend and so on. There's a kind of essential complexity to doing this in a peer-to-peer way that uh, I don't think will ever be lower than the complexity, uh, the essential complexity involved in interacting with a centralized exchange. And so we also don't think that that's a fundamental problem that there's that greater complexity because what you're getting for it is greater privacy, indeed much greater privacy uh, with BISC. And that's really the core uh, value proposition or sort of reason that BISC exists. We talked about security so far, right? Yeah. That using BISC and using all those other things that we were talking about is a great way to make sure that your funds don't get stolen and can't be stolen. You're, you're eliminating a trusted third party. You're eliminating a security hole by taking the centralized uh, exchange out of the loop. That's great. That's security, right? But then there's privacy. 
And that's where, you know, we get back to, to the beginning with Bitcoin and saying, you know, we have this, this, this amazing, you know, global blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. It's all permissionless. It, it, it does for money what the Internet did for information, right? It at least has the potential to do for money what the, the blockchain and Bitcoin has the potential to do for money, what the Internet did for information. You know, if you think about um, pre-web, right? Uh, you know, we had a select set of gatekeepers, media organizations, TV, radio, news, uh, outlets, etc. Post-web, we have an explosion of people becoming their own TV, radio, news, and consuming the TV and radio and news of other sort of self-producers and self-publishers. That dream of the, of the internet and the web has been uh, it ha- has been totally realized and continues to, 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 to be realized to ever greater degrees today. And where we are now, you know, certainly where we were in 2008, 2009, was very much like we were in the kind of media landscape pre-internet with regard to banks and money and finance and so on, mm. right? There's gatekeepers, there's a few banks, there's, a, you know, financial institutions, there's governments, there's regulatory bodies, et cetera. And they have a whole lot to say about what's possible uh, with 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 your money, with money in general, and so on, and uh, that's why you know Bitcoin has has been so deeply exciting to so many uh, uh, technologists, right? You know, the, a glance at the news today is you know all about the price and all about uh, you know an eighteen year old kid who got rich because he bought a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin when he <laughs> was graduated high school, you know, or whatever it was, you sure. know, five years ago. Like, you know, those are, those are fun stories and of course they're sensational and it's all also, you know, true, right? Like, you know, right. people have made a lot of money, but why did all of these people get engaged and why have all these people been, you know, in, in this space now for, for years and years? And it's because of what's possible, right? It's because of that, that amazing promise of what happens when we have essentially uh, the internet of money, if you will, or, or more broadly, the internet of uh, value exchange, right? We now have the possibility to exchange value at a distance, right? With people who we don't have a high degree of trust with. And that was simply not possible prior to uh, Bitcoin without having a trusted third party, some intermediary, a PayPal, if you will, right? In the middle. So right. if that's what Bitcoin made possible, uh, it starts to make sense why we thought BISC was so important because you want to have the ingress and egress from that system, right? Getting into Bitcoin from uh, fiat, right? People call national currencies fiat in the space. If people aren't familiar with the term, right? So US dollars, yen, euros, whatever, that's all fiat money. Getting into Bitcoin from fiat, so buying Bitcoin for dollars, getting out of Bitcoin, selling your Bitcoin for dollars or euros, uh, that's a really important part of the system. It's not Bitcoin itself. It's this kind of, you know, ancillary thing at the edges. But it's incredibly important because as people exchange that money, and if they're doing it via, say, a centralized exchange, if they're doing it in anything other than a person-to-person or, or, or peer-to-peer over the internet way, then somebody else besides you and your counterparty knows about that transaction, 
has a record of that transaction. And uh, centralized exchanges are, uh, the vast majority of them, subject to uh, uh, regulations that say they have to know their customer, right? They have to get ID verifications. This isn't perfectly true, but in many, many cases, most cases, you're dealing with requirements where people have had to give their identities to these to these organizations. And you know, that, that, that information can get out, right. And does get out. It can get out via hacks, right. You can get doxxed. It can get out via government requests. It can get out in, in a number of ways. It's just as vulnerable as the Bitcoin that you're storing there, actually. Yeah. When you couple that, that privacy risk with the fact that Bitcoin is itself a totally transparent system of value exchange in that it's a perfectly trackable, perfectly traceable. You can follow the coin through every single transaction uh, on, the, on, the, on the blockchain. Putting your name, having the possibility of putting your name and personal information on any one transaction, especially say the first transaction where you buy your first Bitcoin or when, when, anytime you buy a new Bitcoin, that means that it's possible for for entities that you might not want to be able to to track that coin all the way through the through the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, and and that does happen. That technology is 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 getting more and more sophisticated as we speak. So-called chain analysis, uh, you know, systems and mm-hmm. companies, that's what they do. So BISC's you know raison d'être here, like really, why does it exist? It's for the protection of individual privacy, to give people who want it, people who need it, people who value it, the ability to get in and out of Bitcoin without ever, you know, putting their personal information uh, on these transactions. So in today's world, right, or I guess if we're not talking about cryptocurrency, that kind of coin, if we're talking about dollars, just to use this example, mm-hmm. my information is not held private, right? If I spend it on a, on a credit card, Amex knows who I am. They have a profile built around me, that kind of thing. If it's uh, Bitcoin spent through BISC, it's private, right? It What's the point of privacy? Help me and the rest of the world understand, I guess, the downside of not being private. Aside from like doxing, like what is it the marketing profile? What are the concerns of privacy? Is it just anonymity? Is it doing shady yeah. things? Like, what's the point of privacy? Yeah, yeah. It always it always bears um, uh, digging into that because it's uh, for better or for worse, it's not always so obvious today, right? You know, you were saying a, 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 a few minutes ago in the in the interview, um, a lot of people um, don't really use cash these days, right? Plenty of people, you know, just pay via credit card, and so on. And in many places, there's a you know kind of war on cash, right? You see this with the demonetization, um, you know, uh, uh, policies have been being rolled out in India and so on. Uh, uh, many countries across the world are, are are basically disincentivizing people to use cash, and there's a variety of reasons for that. But one of the effects of that is that increasingly in the, in that environment, uh, people's financial transactions are uh, under surveillance. Right. It's 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 possible to know and indeed known. Right. What you're spending your money on uh, at any given moment. Right. You know, the, probably uh, Visa isn't sharing that information with anyone, but they can. Right. And again, things can be hacked and so on. Right. And they certainly do 
you know, given given certain conditions, right? Um, yeah. So so why does it matter? Well, the reason I was explaining that is that we've been in this environment for a long time, right? We've all been, you know, not because the U S government has been demonetizing the dollar necessarily, but just by choice and convenience, uh, people have just more or less happily moved to using credit cards. I, I use, I use credit cards, you know, it's, it's useful stuff. There's nothing wrong with it. Right. But the effect that that has is that we increasingly forget over time. Well, what, what value did cash ever have? Right. Uh, well, what is the value of a private financial transaction? And I think it's useful here to just jump outside of money for a moment and ask the question, what is the value of any private interaction at all? Right. So when, you know, it's been a while probably since many people listening to this have sent a physical letter uh, right, you know, to to a friend or a relative or something like that. But we've probably all done it a time or two. When you send a letter, uh, you put it in an envelope and you seal that envelope. Doing that doesn't indicate that you're doing something nefarious or that you're breaking any laws, but it's rather the norm. When it comes to sending physical mail, it's it's a norm. It's uh, we've we've grown up in a culture of privacy in that situation where people would think it quite strange if they just took the whole letter, uh, you know, not an envelope and just slapped a stamp on it. That would feel, Hey, you know, I, every, every postal handler from here to Poughkeepsie or wherever it's going can read my mail. I, I don't want to do that. Right. That's the way postcards work, but mostly, you know, people don't write anything of, you know, great importance on a postcard, but people do bear their souls, talk about, you know, what's uh, important to them or troubles that they're having, et cetera, in letters, right? If we take that, that world of, of uh, communication and communication privacy to the uh, online world, it's a very different world, right? Because it just happens to be that email, which of course we all use a whole lot, uh, basically never had a good envelope, <laughs> right? So, so we live in a culture of uh, openness by default. And, it, you know, we don't think about it that way. When we send an email, we, 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 we have this kind of false sense that it's private, you know, because it's just going to the person that I send it to. But uh, if we know anything from the revelations over the last years, you know, Snowden and all the rest, it's the writing couldn't be written larger on the wall that uh all your all your emails are belong to us right you know says yeah. uh, name name an agency so we live we, we live in a world uh, I, I wouldn't say for better or worse i would say definitely for the worse right where everything you do online uh certainly with email and in many other contexts is, is contexts is per default uh non-private per default open uh, we we see money no different than this. We see uh, digital monies, virtual currencies, cryptocurrencies as no different than the kinds of uh, transactions and interactions people have with speech, with written language, etc. The fact that I'm buying a coffee or uh, sending some some money to my brother, uh, uh, you know, to take care of his family was just in a, uh, we were talking about, uh, Houston and hurricane Harvey before the, before the call started, right. You know, transferring money to my family to help them out in such a scenario or, or what have you, that's just nobody's business, but my own, 
in my families. So there's actually, you know, one argument for privacy is that it's a right and there actually need be no argument for it. It need not be justified any further than uh, no one has the right to force me or to force anyone to be open, right? One ought to have the right to privacy. And that's actually enshrined in, in, the, in the United Nations, uh, uh, you know, statement on human rights and so on, and in a number of other contexts, including the U.S. Constitution and so on. The right to privacy is a long-held tradition. Uh, and it just happens to be that we've been trending and drifting in this direction, especially as the online world has, you know, come to prominence and things like email, we've sort of forgotten about it. We just happen not to be in that private by default environment that physical mail uh, used to be. And there's no reason not to be private uh, when it comes to Bitcoin. And there's actually every reason to be private because, well, do we really want, do we really trust, right? Whether it's the centralized exchanges, you know, generally they're just businesses trying to get along, keep customers, keep people happy, right? Mostly there's nothing nefarious going on with centralized exchanges, but those become information honeypots, right? For, for other entities, other players, governments who, or whomever they may be. Do we, do we really think, you know, people say, ah, I have nothing to hide. Yeah, well, okay. Do, do, does that mean that we ought to just open everything up and give all of our data to anybody who might come along and want it for any reason in the future, right? We, and that's a, that's a big argument for privacy, by the way, is that the environment that we live in today, especially very lucky people like, like our, ourselves, right, living in the States. I'm from the States. I live in, I live in Europe now. But uh, in general, we live, you know, and people listening to this podcast will tend to be people who are living in reasonable enough jurisdictions, right? That probably the most draconian versions of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, crackdowns and so on don't happen to individuals. That's not true of everybody else in the world. And it may or may not be true in the future for ourselves or for our families or for our children. So we can't predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And you, you don't, need and value privacy uh, sometimes until you absolutely wish that you had had it, right? Um, so those are, those are a few reasons. <laughs> Coming up, we talk about BISC, the software, what it is, how it works, and what it's built with. Chris breaks down the peer-to-peer -peer aspect of BISC and how you get fiat currency into the network, altcoins, crypto fiat exchanges, and yes, they even support exchanging for Dogecoin. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, who just launched Spaces, a beautifully simple object storage service that's designed for those who want a simple way to store and serve vast amount of data, such as hosting website assets, storing user-generated content like images and large media files, archiving backups in the cloud and storing logs, 
Just like you're using S3, you can use DigitalOcean Spaces. And in fact, you can use S3 and DigitalOcean Spaces at the same time so you don't have a single point of failure. This is a standalone service, no droplet is needed, and pricing is extremely competitive. To make it easy to try for both new and existing DigitalOcean customers, you can get started today with a free two-month trial of spaces by going to do.co slash changelog. And by TopTow. TopTow is the best place to work as a freelancer or hire the top 3% of freelance talent out there for developers, designers, and finance experts. In this segment, I talk with Josh Chapman, a freelance finance consultant at TopTow, about the work he does and how TopTow helps him legitimize being a freelancer. Take a listen. Yeah, in my arena within TopTal, I specialize in everything from market research to business plan creation to pitch decks to financial modeling, valuation. And then that leads very naturally into fundraising strategy, capital raising strategy, investor outreach, closing a deal, deal negotiation, how to value the company, how to negotiate that. And all those skill sets that I have continued to hone over on the TopTal side are ones that I actually deploy every single day in my own company. Freelancing can sometimes be seen as not legitimate or subpar work. Now, I would argue that when you work with a company like TopTal, they put so much vetting into not only the companies that you work with, but also the talent that you work with, which I'm on the talent side, that it adds a level of legitimacy that isn't seen across other platforms. And that for me, as the talent side, is incredibly fruitful and awesome to be a part of, right? I enjoy the clients. I enjoy the other talent that I get to talk to. I enjoy the TopTal team. And that creates an overall positive experience, not only for for TopTal, but for me as the talent and for the client as the company on the other side. And that is really not seen or is the experience across other platforms in the freelance market. So if you're looking to freelance or you're looking to gain access to a network of top industry experts in development, design, or finance, head to TopTal.com, that's T-O-P-T-A-L.com, and tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. For those wanting a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelog.com. Let's talk about BISC, the software, Chris. One thing you said earlier on was that BISC is uh, inherently more complex than uh, using an exchange because you're adding you know, more bits that have to be peer-to-peer, whereas with an exchange, you have a centralized authority. So tell us about the software itself, um, especially I think where I get to where I see the complexity as a developer is, oh, we have to actually like move money between like the banking world and this world somehow we have to get you know fiat money in and out of a system that does sound like complexities to me so uh, tell us what you guys have been doing with bisc and how it works and all that yeah so it's it's um you could call it a, a hard problem i think it's fair to call yeah. uh doing uh what we refer to as crypto fiat exchanges trades uh in a in a truly peer-to-peer way a truly decentralized way is like a, an official hard problem. Uh, and it's one that, that many thought basically can't be done. Uh, hmm. But uh, of course, it, of course it can. 
if if you're if you're willing to make the right concessions and the right and the right compromises and and know where the limits of um, the the programmatic are and and know where the human must uh, enter the picture, right? So so BISC really embraces the the idea that when we're dealing with fiat currencies and and bank accounts and the rest. Uh, there just has to be human interaction at, at some points. We can't automate everything. Uh, we might be able to automate more if if banks were, uh, say, you know, sort of much more modern than they are, right? If 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 banks had, you know, uh, APIs and standardized ways of debiting and crediting things. If we didn't have to log into a web UI every time we wanted to do something, we yeah. might be able to do more in an automated fashion. But that's not the world we live in, right? So in BISC, uh, you know, if you're, and one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is like, you know, like what actually is the application? So yeah, it's a desktop application. It's a Java FX application, uh, meaning, uh, you know, feels more or less like, you know, just any app, but, uh, but it means that it's cross-platform and, you know, looks and behaves and, and, and so on the same across Windows and Linux and Mac, um, uh, just by the way, that's the kind of nature of the beast is JavaFX desktop application. And when you're first setting it up, right, you're, you're, you're putting information into it like your bank account, right? If, if, if you want to ever sell a Bitcoin over BISC, that means that you're going to receive somebody else's fiat money, right? So it's going to come into... Mm-hmm. Wherever you bank, uh, Capital One or something like that. So you're going to need to put in the account number and the, uh, a, 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 however, just exactly however much information is necessary for that particular payment method to uh, to become possible, right? Uh, so so for example, there are other um, what are often called person-to-person payment systems like uh, Clear Exchange, or it's now called Zelle. Uh, is is something uh, is a system that a, that a number of uh, banks, bigger banks especially in the in the in the U.S., have adopted that allows uh, their customers to transfer uh, direct. You know, it's going through third parties, but uh, directly in the loose sense of the word, I want to send a hundred bucks to this email address, right? And so, if your bank supports Zelle and your counterparty's bank supports Zelle then you can just send money via an email address or via a phone number, right? And all the right stuff will happen between your two banks. So, for example, that's a supported payment method in BISC is Zelle, right? So what you would be putting into your bank account information when you're setting up BISC there is just enough information, your email address or your phone number, the name of your bank, your first and last name, exactly the information that, say, Zelle requires, Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that's what your counterparty is going to need in order to actually complete the transaction and send money into, uh, you know, that account that you own. So so that's that's one of the, um, you know, quote, complexities, right, is setting up setting up a bank account. But you, as you can see, it's kind of essential information. Uh, you, you would never be able to get the money if you didn't do that. Sure. Right? So you could get away with doing just one bank account if that's all you have. If you wanted to support more payment methods, you had bank accounts in multiple um, countries or something like that, then you would set up as many as you needed. So I'm assuming there's a limit to the banks that are supported and potentially an opportunity there for contributions in terms of you guys have Zelle. Um, looks like there's like you can do money orders, which is interesting, cash deposits. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking through your different payment methods in the app. Um 
but it's a limited list. It's probably 12 or so. Does that cover, you know, 80% of people's setups or where are we at with, with regards to how many people can actually get a, a fiat uh, account hooked into this? Yeah. Uh, perhaps I, ironically, um, the U.S. is one of the sort of less rich environments. Uh, there's less, there's fewer options that really work in the U.S. And I'll explain why in a moment. Um, but uh, in in Europe, for example, there's a, a, a pretty almost universal system here in Europe called the SEPA system, S-E-P-A. And pretty much every bank player interoperates with SEPA. And it's a... Uh, you know, reliable and sort of reasonably fast thing, you know, within a day or so. Uh, and so in, in Europe, pretty much people just, you know, need to put in their bank accounts and it's a kind of given that they're going to do it over, over a SEPA transfer. Again, just through their bank's web UI, uh, they, they can, they can initiate a SEPA transfer to anybody else's bank account in Europe. Right. So, so when we're talking about Europe, it's pretty easy, right? People just do SEPA or in, in the UK, uh, there's faster payments, right? That's another one that you might see in the list there. So it really depends on the, on the sort of geographical uh, region, mm -hmm. uh, what payment systems are, are widely used. Uh, in, the, in the US, uh, yeah, you know, we have like postal orders and, and, and we have Zelle, which I mentioned a moment ago. But the limiting factor here, you know, the, the reason why we have added the payments method, the payment methods that we have, and that we have not added or indeed sometimes removed payment methods, other payment methods, is because the, the critical uh, concern for us is chargeback risk. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, it, for example, PayPal is not a supported payment method in BISC because it's just too easy to do chargebacks in PayPal. Uh, so, so this invites scammers into the picture. Right. Uh, they, they can more or less easily initiate a chargeback. And of course, after they have your Bitcoin, they can take their money back right, right. one way or another through through PayPal. And because that's a kind of inherent risk, it, it's just it's too great a hazard. We, we won't support it in the in the in the application. Whereas, say, a system like Zelle. Right. Uh, so far, it, it, we've we've had we've had exactly one chargeback ever, right? In 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 thousands of trades and so on. We basically only ever had one incident, right? We had one chargeback through through Zelle, a totally isolated incident so far. And you know, if we had another, right? And we we might take it down, right? It, it is like extremely important to us that nobody ever gets a chargeback. That's the kind of uh, that's that's why fiat is such a hard problem, right? Is yeah. that it's not irreversible, right? Bitcoin transactions are immutable, irreversible things. Uh, fiat transfers are not. So what we're counting on here, and this is again where I say like knowing where to make the right concessions and compromises and analyzing the human side of things, is that we look at these payment methods and we're basically asking how hard is it for a chargeback to happen? Almost all payment systems can, can one way or another, uh, make a chargeback happen. Well, because there's a third party there and they can just do it, right? Right. But uh, the ones that we support have, have proven themselves to be very unlikely to uh, just frivol frivolously uh, greenlight a chargeback, right? The person's going to have to go through a extreme amount of diligence, right, and really prove their case. And, of course, if it's a, a, somebody trying to perpetrate a scam – they're they're not going to hold up to that scrutiny. So um, 
yeah, so that, that's why you see the payment methods that you do. And, and people suggest new payment methods, and we take it through the same kind of, the same kind of uh, scrutiny on our side, which is actually quite a bit of diligence. We're really trying to you know, figure out, uh, hey, how likely is it that, that something bad could happen with this payment method? So that's why we, we tend to take a conservative approach there. Gotcha. So you get, you get in here, uh, and we're just looking at it from a user perspective. Obviously, there's a lot of complexities on the software side. I think Eve just interfacing with those uh, different payment methods is probably load, loads of stories in the code there, um, not just on the kind of the process and the decision making around which ones to support, but also just the the, the grueling work of, of getting all those to work uh, the way they ought it's, to. If I can jump in there, uh, sure. it's actually simpler than you might think, and it's, it oh, might be good. a useful point of departure for like actually kind of digging into how BISC works. Sure. Um, and it's also a nice point, you know, because we just finished talking about privacy. And the next thing that we talk about is putting your bank account information into this app. And then, you know, well, that's going to get shared with with other people, your counterparty. Who else can see that information? Uh, th- this might seem like um, some kind of contradiction uh, of, the, of the privacy stuff I was just talking about a moment ago. Uh, but as it turns out, right, the, the information that you put in about your bank account, your Zelle information or whatever, whatever it may have been, uh, is never seen by anybody except you and the the trading counterparty who takes your offer. If you were making an offer to sell or if you're taking their offer to sell or buy, uh, that one person, right, that one counterparty, that trading party, uh, will see that information at the right moment in the trade so that, of course, they can actually initiate payment and send you the money, right? It has to happen at some moment, but they're, they're getting that information in a totally peer-to-peer way, right? So it's your BISC node sending it directly to their BISC node. Uh, it's useful to mention here that all BISC nodes are Tor hidden services. Uh, so this is being routed through the Tor network, right, which... We mm-hmm. you know, know, know to be uh, quite a privacy-friendly place, quite a secure place, generally speaking. Um, so that's, you know, and, and the, the information itself is encrypted, you know, only able to be decrypted by uh, your counterparty and so on. So, yep, that information has to make it across at some point, but it's done with the least amount of exposure possible. And certainly nobody that develops BISC or any of the arbitrators say they can't see any of that information. When a, when a trade is, is, is just happening normally. Uh, so maybe we could return to your to Yeah. Your well, also question. just worth pointing out, just to make sure that I'm following well, that it's also only sent in transactions that are trading Bitcoin for fiat, right? It's not like if I'm sending you Bitcoin or I'm assuming, can you trade other altcoins like Bitcoin for Ether with this or is it Bitcoin only? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that uh, because it, it, it definitely if, you, if you're looking at the BISC UI, you'll see lots and lots of um, so-called altcoins, right? right, or just other tokens besides Bitcoin. And for people who aren't familiar with this, there's you know, something on the order of a thousand of these tokens out there, coins, uh, tokens that go by these different terms, and, and they can all be traded in more or less the same way that Bitcoin can right they're all um they're all uh uh, fundamentally similar technologies uh so every trade in bisque uh one side of that trade is going to be bitcoin but the other side of the trade might be fiat it might be uh ether right from the ethereum world or uh 
Monero or one of these other um, uh, uh, altcoins, mm. so they're called. So it's into and out of the Bitcoin world. That's right. And, and for completeness, I should actually say, um, it, it tends to be in practice that one side of every trade in BISC is Bitcoin. Uh, we've actually recently added support for additional kinds of what we call base pairs, right? So in, in the yeah. situation that I just described, Bitcoin is the base of the of the trading pair. Uh, but we also support uh, Dash, right, which is another popular cryptocurrency. We support Litecoin. Uh, we even have support for Dogecoin, which nice. you guys you guys may know and, and, and other people may not know as a kind of a kind of a, a meme, a kind of a joke on cryptocurrency, but yeah, people people use it and it's even possible to trade against Does it, it as still a base hold pair. any value? I remember it like spiked back in the day, but I haven't been tracking. Uh, is it still? I, I think it's trading pretty low. I, I actually don't follow <laughs> I it so closely. So. And 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 it, as it turns out, uh, uh, no one's, uh, in fact, I think we haven't had even one trade against Doge as a base pair. We, mm-hmm. we Your added online those charts don't show any action, activity for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we added those uh, those alternative base pairs um, it, 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 over the over the last six months or so because um, I don't know if you guys uh, sort of caught you know this level of depth in the in the Bitcoin world, but we saw uh, transaction fees in Bitcoin going up and up and up. It was actually getting pretty expensive to move Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain. And that's a whole uh, world of conversation and, and, and debate about why that was and so on. But it was getting to the point where it was becoming uh, almost prohibitively expensive to use BISC because a BISC trade actually has several uh, tran- Bitcoin transactions are in the mix, right? You actually you, you actually mm-hmm. move Bitcoin around several times between the two trading parties, and when uh, when transaction fees were getting up to you know two and three and four dollars and more uh, per transaction, it was like, hey, <laughs> that's no good, right? So that's why right. we, that's one of the reasons why we introduced things like Litecoin and 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 Dash and so on because they weren't suffering from those high transaction fees. These days, thankfully, transaction fees have, have uh, returned to reasonable levels, and so there, there isn't a there isn't a whole lot of reason for for people to switch to those other base pairs, unless they you know really have a particular interest in those in those coins. Yeah. So the default is uh, Bitcoin as a base pair, but we we're talking about the transaction of your your connection details for the fiat account. And I was, that's, I was stating right. that, that that's only sent between you and the transacting party in the case that one part of the pair is to a fiat account, right? If it's BTC to Dash, there's no reason to send that information over the wire in that case. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And and if okay. you if you look at the you know, it's all stored in 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 um, proto buffer files, right? So if you if you sort of grep the strings in the in the proto buffer of file that's representing that trade, right, which is sort of stored mm-hmm. in a you know on disk database underneath underneath BISC, and you grep the strings in there, you know, you sort of you know looked at it in some sort of plain text viewer, you would see that the only thing that ever crossed the wire uh, in a in a Bitcoin Dash trade was uh, the 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 Dash address to send the money to. Right or to right. send to send the coins to, or the Bitcoin address to send the coins to, whichever the case may have been. Um, so yeah, in in these cases, there's yeah, it's it's a m- maximally private. We would certainly <laughs> we don't just sprinkle in the bank accounts that you've added <laughs> for good measure, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. And then, but it's and but, then but it's important. The other case that that, that, that right? information, yeah, just to make it clear, 
Uh, the mm-hmm. other pl- place where that information also lives would be locally inside of the BISC application. I assume that that's also encrypted on disk on your computer. Yeah, actually, the actually the database, those protobuffer files are not encrypted on disk. It's actually okay. an open request, and there's a couple of uh, you know things for us to work out to do that. But it's there's nothing fundamental about uh, not doing it. If you yeah. if you add a password, uh, your wallet, right? If you add a pa- like a password to get into BISC, then your wallet is definitely encrypted, right? So so the actual Bitcoin that you're holding inside of BISC is certainly encrypted on disk. The trades themselves are not. Generally speaking, we say, you know, the answer to that is, uh, you know, just whole disk encryption and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as, uh, as, as one user recently pointed out, that works for you. But what about the counterparty, right? If he doesn't have whole disk encryption, then, uh, you know, yeah. your information is on his side. So it's actually, it's important and it's on our, on our roadmap basically. But, um, gotcha. yeah. So then the other aspect of this, which is, um, I think, worth talking about, you mentioned the Tor network. Uh, when you launch the application, you connect to a certain number of peers on the Tor network. And then it also lists your Bitcoin network peers. Um, then you have a list of offers and, well, offers to buy offers and sell offers. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm just looking at it right now. Um, with the launch, maybe there's half a dozen or so offers to buy. And there's zero offers to sell. Um, I'm assuming. Yeah, you're, so, you're looking at uh, USD. Yeah, BTC USD. Mm-hmm. Um, I can look at it real quick on the euro side. It's maybe the same to buy, and there's a, there's an offer to sell um, on the euro side. So when it comes to moving money between fiat and BTC inside of BISC, you are limited. I'm asked this is a question. You are limited to the other people who are also using BISC. Or, or is it open? It's not. Or is it open to the wider Bitcoin community? Anybody with a Bitcoin wallet or an exchange? Or um, help me understand why there are so yeah. few. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the former, right? So you can see offers and you can place offers, uh, but the only people that will the only the only people that are able to place offers for you to see or that will see the offers that you placed are other people who are running bisc so there's not for example a, a kind of gateway into bisc where we have access to other order books right from other exchanges or what have you um, which would perhaps be possible but would be a, a whole can of worms with regard to maintaining the same privacy and security profile that we have it seems about the the decentralization of it versus the centralization of it because that's right across that you're you've now broken your cardinal rule which is the motivation for the whole thing right yeah on the other side you have network effects uh limiting bisc like with the current size you know maybe i do want to i'm ready to uh buy bitcoin to usd but there's just no offers to sell out there and so uh, as a community this is something that bisc the network needs to overcome in terms of volume for it to be feasible, you know, which is a chicken and an egg type of a thing, is it? Is it not? Yeah, certainly. I mean, if 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 one were to ask, like, what are the what's the you know key limitations or something like that, you know, yeah. what's the downside of, of of BISC, right? Well, you know, one is, hey, we're asking you to to do more and 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 think more and care more, right? And the reward is uh, privacy and, and security, right? And if that's of interest to you, then you know. BISC is for you, right? And if not, then right. that's okay too. Uh, but the uh, 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 so that's one thing, right? The second thing is 
is liquidity, right? Volume, uh, the the likelihood at any given moment that you wanting to buy or sell, that there's going to be somebody right on the other side of that trade to pick it up, right? Right. And and so the state of the the state of the situation today is, you know, we, we have trades happening every day. You know, it's a consistent, uh, you know, kind of predictable number that's actually growing uh, over time. But we're talking about uh, orders of magnitude, in some cases, fewer trades per day, let's say, than an exchange like Coinbase or an exchange like Bitstamp or Bitfinex or really any uh, popular centralized exchange. They're right. moving they're moving thousands of Bitcoin for every one that we do, that BISC does. Mm. Uh, now, in practice, right, it seems to be the case that people can get into BISC. I mean, it, just, it, just from looking at the trade statistics and so on, it seems to be the case that people can arrive at BISC, place a trade or take somebody else's offer and, you know, get what it is that they were looking for. But it comes at a, at a premium, right? Right. Uh, it, it, it comes at the premium of time. You might have to wait a little while for something to show up or for someone to take your your order. And when you're on a, a centralized platform, I mean, back to the convenience thing, you know, yeah. these are these are automated uh, matching, automated order book matching, where you know just the mere act of saying, "I want to sell at market price this much Bitcoin," it's instantaneously uh, uh, matched for you, because basically the the exchange itself is accepting the order and, you know, it's, it, it knows that there's going to be enough liquidity on the other side mm. to, to make the right match. There's enough volume uh, to, for them to buy it, essentially. They're essentially yeah. buying it, holding it, and that's why they're the target we talked about earlier. Yeah, it feels more like you're trading at a volume where it's like almost like the stock market where you just, you look at the current price and you say buy or sell. And there's guaranteed, because there is enough volume, that they're going to match that. Mm -hmm. um, that's right. It's in fractions of a penny or whatever. That's right. And so anybody who's, uh, who's, you know, anything like approaching a serious trader, right? So, you know, they, they're, 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 you know, they have a, a, a trading journal, they're thinking about it all day, they're watching charts, they're doing analysis, you know, all of this stuff. They're, they're basically not going to be able to function in BISC because they simply couldn't act quickly enough to the movements in the, in the, in the price and so on that they're, they're paying such close attention to. So for such a user, right, just to take the extreme example, right, of somebody who would basically be crippled by BISC, right, you basically can't do a, a day traders or a swing traders or just a kind of active traders uh, work in BISC. It's simply not designed for it. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a role for BISC for such people, right? Uh, for someone like that, my recommendation would be, as you're getting into Bitcoin, right, use BISC. Then move that Bitcoin to the the exchange of, of your choice, right? Mm. It, it's at least, uh, and, and, and again, di different exchanges can, uh, uh, you know, ha have, have different levels of, of uh, requirements about how much they, they ask from you. You're still exposing yourself. It's still lower privacy, but it's, it's. You could still use BISC to get in uh, and and out fundamentally. Uh, likewise, if if you know you you simply need if the trading that you're doing is between sort of crypto token or crypto asset pairs, right? That first Bitcoin that you get uh, would be through BISC, and then you could use a platform like Shapeshift or some of these other kind of crypto to crypto exchanges. And then you have a, a really great sort of privacy profile there because your, your coins were never tainted 
with your personal information. And now you're just you know trading and moving stuff around in, in, in crypto land. But yeah, so just just to just to be clear, right? So for like a super active trader, that's yeah. not what Bisc is designed for. It's designed for you know sort of normal individuals who are saying, hey. You know, I, I understand Bitcoin. I believe in, in Bitcoin and in the sort of larger crypto sort of uh, space. And I want to I want to get in and I want to do that in a privacy protecting way, in a secure way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe just one more point on that is uh, just come back to the to the volume question. Yeah, it's definitely uh, where BISC needs to go, right, is, is to increase the amount of, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of depth of the order book and all of that stuff. Right. The good news is that. It's basically happening, right? It's uh, uh, these things take time. Like I said, it, we've been up for 16 months, 17 months now, and we actually see a, a really nice curve. Uh, not just, you know, if you, if you guys have the app open, right, and if you're looking at the the market, uh, sort of top level nav, and you look at trades, you know, you'll see mm-hmm. by default you'll see the kind of volume in, in BTC that's moved through the exchange on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis or what have you. And if you're looking at it like in terms of weeks, say, it, it can be deceiving, right? Because you see the number of Bitcoin was kind of growing and growing and growing through June, and then it drops off in July. And then it's been kind the, of slowly growing back up. Yeah, what were you gonna say? Uh, I was gonna say, was that, wasn't there a hard fork or something? There was some sort of split. That's that's right. There was maybe a kind of chilling effect on trading. That was one aspect, but that's not the most important one. The most important one is that right about that time in July, the price started going through the roof, right? So the amount of Bitcoin that moves through an exchange like mm-hmm. BISC isn't, you could say it's not actually the most important metric. What's The most important metric is how much of the value that people denominate their lives in is moving through the exchange. And when you do the math, if you're looking, you know, I realize people on the call can't see this chart, but the point is, is that even though the amount of Bitcoin dropped in July and has been now slowly growing back up, it dropped, but it, disproportionately with the amount of, 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 of increase in the price. So, sure. so if we had a, pri- a, a sort of amount of kind of like it, the effective amount of US dollars that were moved through the exchange over those last many weeks, you actually see that being a, a, a chart that just goes up and up and up. So yeah. we actually have, it's a, it, you might not see it when you first look at the application or even at our own kind of market statistics website, but in actual fact, we have a, we've been doubling the amount of, uh, of, of value that moves through about every 3.5 months lately. So we're on a, a quite a healthy growth uh, uh, trend there. And that means that it's ever more likely day by day as we continue to grow that as people come in and say, I'd like to trade this for that, it's all the more likely that they're going to get that that trade yeah. uh, matched quickly. Yeah, absolutely. It seems to be growing. And yeah, uh, the chart that we would love to see would be like, like you said, it would be a volume times amount, right? Like it would be the total, That's the, right, volume, the, f- the amount per Bitcoin times the volume would be like the total transactions in the marketplace valued appropriately versus exactly. just transaction exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. And you can and you can see that when you look at it through like if you show in the in that trades tab, if you just show say Euro trades, uh, then you can see the, the the you see two charts. You see the price next to the to the BTC volume and you yeah. can see the price going up at least. It's still not the complete picture. Um, 
but it's it's just kind of funny. It's sort of this super super useful thing to graph, and we don't really have it in the app, but we have it, yeah. you know, in some spreadsheets, right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pull requests, welcome, I guess. Indeed. In this last segment, we talk about the software as it relates to the community and how we can help out. BISC is open source, it's peer-to-peer, decentralized, secure, private, and censorship resistant, which are all things hackers value. We talk about the idea of open source projects funding themselves through the concept of a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, or an ICO, an initial coin offering, and Chris breaks down their plan to fund BISC through the BISC DAO. This is as bleeding edge as it gets for funding open source. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. It provides continuous delivery out of the box with this built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end. It supports modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments, and their plugin ecosystem ensures GoCD will work well in your unique environment. To learn more about GoCD, Visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's open source and free to use. And there's also professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog. about the software in the community because uh, you have a network effects problem, you have a value proposition, which is privacy and security, which are things that are valued by hackers around the world. And so no doubt you're trying to get more people involved in BISC, both as, you know, I'm going to hook up my fiat currencies and, and play some trades, but also the software itself, it's open source, the whole thing is about peer-to-peer and open. And you have some calls to action uh, on your website. I think I'm probably looking at an outdated version of it, but it does say you're actively looking for highly skilled developers and designers and security experts uh, who can pitch in and help out. And so give us that lay of the land. How can we get involved? How can we help out? Why would we want to? Yeah, well, that's where it uh, starts to get really exciting for, for me. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously excited about uh, Biscuit itself, the exchange. I, I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, it's what we're now rolling out, uh, which is what we call the the DAO, the BISC DAO, uh, which for those who don't know, that stands for a Decentralized Autonomous Organization, DAO. And, uh, th- this concept has also been called, been called DAC, Decentralized Autonomous Corporation or Company, but the kind of term of art that's, 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 that's emerged and kind of got this rough consensus these days in the space is this idea of a DAO. Okay, so well, what, does, what does that mean and how does that relate to people participating and contributing? So 
the the idea of a of a DAO, if you just break down those terms, decentralized autonomous organization. Well, we've talked so far about the application itself, which is definitely decentralized. The application is definitely peer-to-peer. It's nothing more than the node of networks talking to each other, right? So it's certainly decentralized in that sense. What's not decentralized is the organization itself, the, the human side of the organization. And to date, you know, we've, we've had contributors coming and going over the years. And indeed, for myself, I got uh, deeply involved with BISC when it was beginning uh, in, in, in 2014, and I spent five or six months with the team in a, in a kind of dedicated way. And then I left and did uh, uh, some other things. I was working with the, the Gradle team for people who know Java build systems, right, for about a year. And then I decided to come back, and I decided to come back actually in large part because of uh, what BISC is doing with this DAO. Uh, and so what does it mean to decentralize the, the, the management, the operations, the development, all the human sides of, 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 of making a piece of software? This is really exciting stuff because with the advent of cryptocurrencies, with the advent of Bitcoin in particular, uh, it's now possible for people to, like I said before, right, to, to engage with each other at a distance with a less with it with a minimum of trust right so somebody working all the way across the world who is a javafx expert and wants to help improve the ui and put that chart in that we were just talking about so far in the world of open source right the 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 ways that that contribution was going to happen was a He's just an industrious, helpful person over there with his JavaFX expertise and says, I want to contribute, you know, for the goodness of it all. And of course, you know, this isn't so altruistic per se, right? You know, it's great reputationally for people when they contribute to open source projects, even if they're not paid and so on. It's a virtuous thing all around. Everybody wins uh, usually in, in these kinds of scenarios, but it doesn't scale very well, right? Relying on... Uh, on just really helpful contributors uh, contributing all the things that a project needs uh, can be difficult, right? Certainly some projects do it, but you know, I think when we look at the most successful, you know, really world-changing open source projects that have been out there, there's usually at some point an entity behind them, right? A, a company is sponsoring them or they form a company or, or what have you. And uh, and this this is uh, this is really kind of a personally important to me because I've been working in open source for um, quite a while now. Um, you know, for the last um, well ten, ten years plus, right? Every job that I've had has been with some sort of open source organization, and usually fairly prominent ones. And so I've I've sort of seen all of the different incarnations of business models. Uh, that, that attempt to get basically bolted on to open source organizations. So, f- for example, I uh, worked with the Spring Framework team. Again, for people in Java, they'll maybe know that name, Application Framework, um, pretty popular one. And, you know, in the beginning, that was just a, a great set of ideas, really well implemented in an open source project, uh, you know, Quickly, the team around that said, okay, let's find ways to make money. And we did, you know, the training and consulting approach, 
right? And, you know, that works, doesn't scale very well, doesn't make much money. And eventually we were acquired, you know, eventually there, and, and, and so on and so forth. So you sort of move through these different models, but none of them feel like a native business model for open source. It's always something kind of ancillary that you're doing, uh, training, consulting, or selling your documentation, or, you know, looking for someone to acquire you and, and, and kind of be a patron ultimately for, for the project. What becomes possible now with, uh, with, with cryptocurrencies and entities like DAOs is that open source projects can just fund themselves uh, directly in a variety of ways, right? And there's a whole bunch of models that are being experimented with right now. And, you know, you guys have probably heard something about and many people on the call or listening to this will have, will have heard about this uh, ICOs, right? Initial coin offerings yeah. uh, that, that are happening where, you know, like I said, like a thousand of these tokens exist and are being traded and dozens more are being created every day as people come up with all kinds of different experiments about how to fund projects, right? Most of that stuff is uh, people funding uh, essentially good ideas with good teams. Hopefully, of course, some of them are trying to fund bad ideas with bad teams, but <laughs> and some, some, some people are funding scammers. <laughs> yeah, and, and for sure. And some percentage <laughs> are actually out and out scams, right? Yeah, I think, I think, I think a lot of people are too quick to say, uh, oh, it's just all scams or something like that. Uh, mostly the, the things that you run into, uh, I think it's still safe to say are actually well-intentioned people, uh, saying, Hey, I've got a bright idea. I've, I've got some sort of notion of a kind of, of a kind of economics that I can add into this application that I can sort of tokenize it. Right. And, and that I can build a, a, a legitimate way to fund the, the, the development of this project and people will hold this token and, 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 and pay for, you know, using the application with the token or whatever different kind of model. Right. Uh, so there's, hours and hours and hours that we could talk about on all of those models, right? But what BISC is doing is something, uh, I think, um, uh, if not unique, uh, uh, very uh, uh, unusual by comparison uh, to this kind of norm that we've been seeing in the space. And, and, and basically, one thing that makes it unusual is, is that BISC is uh, working, running software, right? Uh, you know, we've actually built the system. It's out there. It works. People use it and people are happy to, uh, pay to use it, right? When people, when people, uh, initiate a trade, both on the maker side and the taker side, both counterparties, uh, they pay a fee, right? They pay a fee into, into BISC in Bitcoin, right? And that fee goes to the arbitrators today. Right. Uh, you know, I, I'm one of those arbitrators, right? The founder of, of BISC is one of the arbitrators. So people are willing to pay to use this application and this network because it's valuable to them to be able to trade, right? The same reason that people pay a fee on, you know, a centralized exchange, right? So that works to a degree uh, in terms of, you know, kind of economically incentivizing the development of the application that can you know, help pay the bills and so on, if you will. But it doesn't uh, it doesn't scale very well with regard to getting that that JavaFX you know UI person to come and contribute that chart implementation or uh, you know fix that bug or, or or whatever it is, and that's where again this idea of a DAO comes in. So what we're what we're up to here and what we're rolling out is a token. Uh, we we added a token into the sort of larger BISC system, 
And that token is actually something it, based on Bitcoin. This is something that um, is not a new idea, but not a lot of people do. It's called a colored coin. And what that means is um, that each uh, BSQ token, we actually call the token BISC as well, but it's sort of ticker symbol would be BSQ, all caps, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Each BSQ token is actually backed by uh, a small fraction of a Bitcoin, just a uh, a thousand uh, satoshis, right? Where a satoshi is uh, one one hundred millionth of a of a bitcoin, right? So a thousand of those, which is very 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 small amounts of bitcoin, uh, actually it backs this coin. So what this means is that, um, uh, and before I get too much into the details of of what BISC is, what can you what BSQ is, what can you do with it? Well, we haven't launched it yet. Right, and I can kind of get into the details in the roadmap later. But when it's when it's fully functional, what people will be able to do is buy BSQ, right? Trade for BSQ on the BISC exchange, right? So they might trade Bitcoin for it. And with that BSQ, they'll be able to pay their trading fees at a lower rate than they would pay for it in Bitcoin. So it'll be a, a cost savings to them. They'll be able to do more trades more cheaply when they pay for them in BSQ. Okay, so what, <laughs> right? What good does that do? Mm -hmm. Well, on the other side, right, and getting back to the original question that you asked is, you know, we wanna bring people in, have more people contribute, we wanna fully decentralize the operation and maintenance and development of the whole network and the application and so on. So this is the second role now of the BSQ token. The first role is that you can use it, you can pay to use the application with it, right? So it's kind of access token in that way. The second utility that it has is that you can be paid in it for the work that you do for BISC or on BISC. So somebody comes along and implements the chart that we were just talking about. They would, at the end of that uh, month period, uh, issue what we call a compensation request. And fundamentally, that's going to be a, a, a document uh, saying, hey, I, I did this work, right? It might be a link to a pull request or one or more pull requests or commits, something like that. It says, you know, hey, I, I contributed to the chart and it's merged. And, you know, that took me this much time. And, you know, this is my market rates, you know, what I usually get paid. Again, just sort of thinking in, in the units of currency that we denominate our lives in, hey, this was, you know, a thousand bucks worth of work for me and then they would look at what the market price of bsq is and they would issue a compensation request for that amount of bsq what happens uh, is then the dao the decentralized autonomous organization votes on his compensation request and anybody else's requests that were issued uh, during that period and they're voting in the affirmative or, or, or negative right y yes we're going to pay for that work no we're not and people don't have any guarantee, right? Uh, how that, do you vote? Yeah, how, how do you vote technically, right? It's, uh, I, could, I could get into the technical details. I'd be happy to. But conceptually, yeah. uh, just, just imagine that there's a, a tab in the application, actually in the same BISC client application, where you're now in kind of DAO mode, and you're in the voting tab, and you have a list of the uh, compensation requests in front of you that you can review, and you've got a kind of a, you know, yes, no checkbox, just to, to 
maybe oversimplified a little bit, but conceptually that that is what you'll be doing, saying, yes, I, I, I vote to have this happen. Might be the skeptical mind here will be saying like, oh my, oh my goodness, this will just turn into a political nightmare and so on. Uh, <laughs> I'm at, one, I've seen a lot of, yeah, I've seen a lot of conceptual uh, uh, roadblocks or, or maybe speed bumps that uh, as you're explaining this, but um, yeah. I can I can either uh, anticipate them and and, and, <laughs> and teach them already, or you can ask. Uh, either way you like. Yeah, just continue with your explanation, and maybe we'll just round them up at the end because we probably can't cover. I mean, this is these are new concepts. These are like you said, experimentations. Yeah. Um, the exact right. models that will flow out of this are yet to be known. I think the the idea is interesting. Maybe yeah. the way you're going about it may may have its own bumps, as you just mentioned. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth digging into all of those skeptical questions, whether or not we have time to do it. Uh, right. So far, of course, you know the the team that's that's putting all this together, we're, you know, we're we're reasonably uh, satisfied that we've actually addressed, you know, that we sort of have an economic system here that is actually at least potentially sound, right? That doesn't have any uh, obvious glaring faults. Now, time will tell, of course. Right. Uh, but just just to, to flesh it out a little bit more, right? So mm-hmm. the people that are voting, what are they voting with? Well, it's not just a radio, you know, sort of a button in a UI uh, and, you know, some entry in a, a distributed database. What they're actually voting with is their BSQ, uh, so this is the third function of this token, right? The first one is that you can pay trading fees with it. The second one is that you can be paid in it. And the third one is that you can vote with it. And voting with BSQ is actually uh, a Bitcoin transaction. It is actually literally the the creation and signing and sending of a Bitcoin transaction. So if you remember, BSQ is actually backed by Bitcoin underneath these uh, you know, tiny fraction per, per token. So it's a, it's a Bitcoin transaction with all the virtues of it, right? All the irreversibility and all the transparency and all the verifiability and so on and so forth. It's now representing a vote. And I, I won't go deeper into the technical side of that, but it's important to understand that uh, people are actually voting with their stake in BSQ. So for someone who has say just a hundred BSQ, maybe they've just done some, some very small tasks a few times. They can vote, but they can vote proportionally. They can only vote with the power of a hundred BSQ. Whereas somebody who's been contributing to the project for years and has uh, thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of BSQ can, can also at least potentially vote with all of that proportion as well. And uh, that can create its own problems, of course, because if people can buy BSQ, mm-hmm. And buy up a whole lot of BSQ and they can manipulate the project, right? And that's why also part of the plan and part of the, the, the roadmap and the design is that uh, reputation, right? A- another function of BSQ here is that it's actually a proxy for reputation. So in the end, people will not only vote just proportional to the stake of BSQ that they have, like literally the number that they have, but they'll also vote in proportion to the reputation that they've uh, demonstrably earned. They've been paid, let's say, X number of times in BSQ. They've been paid this amount of times in BSQ. 
we count that not just as holding the BSQ, but as having been someone who earned BSQ, earned reputation. People had to agree that the work that you did was valuable. That's a measure of how, 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 how sort of useful and trustworthy you are as a person in the network. So in the end, the voting arrangement will actually be mostly reputation-based and only partially uh, stake-based. Um, this, this takes a while to, to bootstrap and make, and make happen, right? Um, but mm-hmm. that, that's the plan. So, so if you start to put all of these pieces together, you start to see this kind of larger uh, crypto economic system forming, then what you have is the ability for for us as the current team, right? The the current uh, actually very centralized team, centralized not that we're co-located with each other, right? But centralized in the sense of you know yeah. I'm playing a dozen roles and Manfred the founder is playing a dozen roles and there's only a few of us, right? Right. So what this the opportunity that this affords is that we can now do things like bounties, right? Like that's not a new concept in open source. Uh, but these bounties can be for an amount of, of BSQ or for a range of BSQ, say. And the only thing standing between a potential contributor and, the, and, and, and actually, you know, the realization of that bounty is doing the work, right? You know, and, and of course, doing it in a fashion that's acceptable and actually accepted. Uh, that's that's, a, that's a, a radical lowering of, uh, of the barriers that we have today for people being able to be compensated monetarily for their work, right? Uh, there, no, no. Generally speaking, no one is doing uh, kind of open source contribution at a distance outside of a traditional organization mm-hmm. or, or company structure and being compensated economically for it. That doesn't happen today, by and large. The idea of of DAOs is that it makes that possible in in a um, a rather dramatic way, right? So the biggest challenge for us is being able to articulate this stuff and you know make it really clear and and absorbable absorbable for people and so on. As you can tell, right? How how long have I been <laughs> in a monologue here, right? Uh, that's a challenge. And so that's that that actually gets to my role. Uh, you know, what what am I actually doing on the team? Like I mentioned, I just recently sort of rejoined in a in a serious way just over the last mm-hmm. few months, and we've. And we've landed on the um, rather tongue-in-cheek, kind of ironic, oxymoron, uh, oxymoronic-sounding title of Director of Decentralization. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as silly like as it sounds, it turns out that's exactly what I don't think just BISC needs, but any any organization, any open source project who wants to take this idea of decentralization out to its logical end and really decentralize not just the code, not just the network, but the, the people, the operation, the management, all of it, uh, that never starts decentralized. That's always going to start with one or just a few people and then have to become decentralized. So it's, it's funny to, to, to say it, right? But, but it actually does require a kind of uh, centralized uh, you know, d- directing that process of, of decentralization. And when, uh, you know, when people are listening to this and they, you know, take a look at at, at the BISC website, right, BISC.network is the website. When they see that, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll be able to see all the links that take them to, you know, the, 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 the boards of GitHub issues. You know, we're using GitHub and ZenHub and just all modern stuff for this where people will be able to see all the bounties and they'll be able to see beyond just individual bounties, they'll be able to see what we call the roles that make up 
uh, the, the the BISC network, the, the kind of persistent, often privileged roles that are necessary to make a network like this happen. Because while it's just, you know, peer-to-peer code and anybody can just download the client and run it, well, there is a website, right? However simple it may be, there's a website, there's a domain name, uh, the domain name costs money, you know, there's... Uh, it, just any number of the of the services and 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 products that a team needs to consume. Somebody needs to have owner rights in GitHub. Uh, somebody needs to operate a Twitter account, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so what we've uh, put together here is not just individual bounties. Hey, implement that better chart, but also roles. Right. Be the Twitter account operator. Right. And those roles. Mm. Uh, because there's a risk involved, right? You know, hey, if somebody goes rogue here, uh, it's not just about that they don't get compensated that month, but if they start, you know, disparaging the project or something like that on Twitter, uh, you know, that's that's a real damage to the overall network, right? Or at least potentially is. So for this reason, there's yet another function of the BSQ token, which is bonding. So for people to take on a role that has this kind of you know, potential risk involved that's of importance to the network and so on, they'll put up a bond in BSQ that's uh, in proportion to the uh, you know, kind of amount of risk that's involved to the network with somebody having the keys to Twitter or having the, the keys to our you know, domain name registrar or what have you. Uh, so you know, maybe it's a uh, – or for being an arbitrator by the way, right? In the future, arbitrators will be bonded, you know, to the tune of probably hundreds of thousands of BSQ because arbitrators can can potentially wreak havoc if they were a rogue actor. When you put all of this together, uh, you know, we're really excited that we have a kind of arrangement that can properly incentivize uh, good people to come and, and, and work and get paid and, and build something fantastic, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and just one last thing on that is that if you think about being able to get bonded for one of these roles, being able to you know, become the operator of the Twitter handle or whatever it may be, well, you have to first have BSQ, right? You first have to have BISC tokens. And, well, you, you could potentially trade for them. But actually, in the early days, uh, what we call phase zero, which we're just rolling out right now of the DAO, trading is not possible. It's only earning that's possible. So the only way people would ever be able to become bonded and take on a very important role in the network is that they would have had to do things like bounties or just individual tasks, earning BSQ bit by bit until they've naturally demonstrated their value to the project. Mm-hmm. So in this way, we actually also think that we have a way to, to build up you know, a team uh, largely of developers, largely of technologists. This is a deeply technical project, right? Uh, that, that, are, that are people who have just demonstrated value all along the way and then start to take on greater and greater responsibility as opposed to just saying, hey, get yourself you know, enough BSQ and you can just do whatever, right? That, that doesn't work. People can just buy it up. In the, in the beginning, people can only earn it. Or even certain functions that don't require BSQ that is held, but you know, like you said, it's earned. Like You can only buy this function, so to speak, with earned BSQ. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, you know, without, you're still paying your own way, but it's through earning, and the earning is by proving value. That's right. And, and you actually are kind of touching on here the, the power of, um, uh, well, basically programmable money, right? 
that we can encode into uh, the logic of BSQ itself uh, certain semantics, right? Like, for example, uh, this isn't the way that it's designed right now, but it easily could be, and it may turn to this as we as we actually roll this stuff out. It could be that the only people who have the right to vote are people who have newly minted BSQ. Uh, when you issue a compensation request and it gets accepted, that's the issuance of new BSQ, actually new BSQ come into existence when you uh, get the compensation request accepted, like voted in the affirmative. Uh, and that's because, by the way, remember, BSQ is ultimately backed by Bitcoin. It's this colored coin riding on top of Bitcoin. Well, what that means is that when you issue a compensation request saying, hey, I, you know, I want 10,000 BSQ for this work, that means that you must actually spend the equivalent in Bitcoin of 10,000 BSQ. You have to actually issue a Bitcoin transaction for 1,000 Satoshis you know, times 10,000 BSQ. It actually costs money for people to issue compensation requests. And the reason that we do that is one, anti-spam, right? So that you know, we don't just have people throwing compensation requests at us because it's free. Uh, people actually have to pay for it, which means that they, they, they're going to want to have a reasonable degree of certainty that uh, this is going to be accepted, which means that they have all the correct social incentives to you know, be out there talking to other people in the network and saying, hey, do you think this is good work? What should I, what should I ask for it? Et cetera, et cetera, because they don't want to waste that compensation request transaction fee, right? Well, when they do that and their compensation request gets accepted, that Bitcoin that they spent on the compensation request becomes BSQ, gets colored as BSQ by the logic in the BSQ validation processing software that we've built. So when I say newly issued, newly minted BSQ, what, that, what I actually mean there is somebody who just earned it. And because it's a blockchain and we can see the movement of every coin you know, for all of time, we can know that the BSQ that that, that that person, that contributor earned, has not moved anywhere. It hasn't been transferred to anybody else, say. So we can know that's the BSQ of somebody who just earned it. Maybe only those people should be able to vote, right? And that is just an example of what you can do. Really, uh, there are constraints, right? Not anything is possible. But there's a, a, a remarkable degree of uh, creativity that's happening and it begins to, begins to become evident just how limiting our current monetary world is. We don't have programmable money. Uh, look at what we've done with being able to program the rest of the world. You know, here it comes. Here comes programmable money, right? I think that's uh, probably a great place to end. Here comes programmable money. <laughs> uh, Chris, we have lots of little questions, but I feel like honestly, most of those are probably because this is just brand new to us conceptually even. Mm -hmm. And so um, y'all have put many hours in probably debating and discussing all the particular details. So um, I think we'd probably be doing a disservice asking perhaps the layman's questions at this point, uh, have not have like digested any movie, even read the white paper about your guys' uh, DAO. Um, so we'll probably just save those. We've already definitely hit up against our time buffer, but um, we'd love to have you back on maybe in a year, maybe in six months and, and kind of look at BISC's uh, DAO and how it's going and how it's shooken out and 
um, maybe dive into all the particular details because what we would like to ultimately know, first of all, is this going to work for you guys? Um, and then can we extrapolate that to open source projects around the world of all shapes and sizes? Um, I think we could speculate right now whether or not this would work yeah. in certain circumstances, but I think perhaps if we have you back on with a little bit more experience, since it's rolling out as we speak, or probably by the time the show ships, it will be out there. Um, but with some time, we can tell if this is going to be a model that makes sense for BISC. Um, does that yeah. sound like something you'd be willing to do? I'd, I'd love to come back. And uh, and it, it, just to, to echo your point, right, that's that's exactly, that's kind of our, our highest aspiration here is, is if we can prove this out, this kind of DAO model for decentralizing the governance and the funding of a trading application, right? That, that's where it begins. Right. Well, then the question becomes, what else can you do this with, right? And of, of course, we don't think it's limited at all to doing it just for a trading application. So if we can set any kind of example uh, mm -hmm. for ways that, that, that other applications can do this. And, and again, you know, we, we think after all this kind of madness and, 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 and irrational exuberance and people, you know, it's all, it's all natural. People are out there exploring and trying different things with all these ICOs and so on. Uh, what we hope will, will come out on the other side is uh, this kind of uh, sober realization and, and remembrance that, uh, you know, working software matters, right? And, and there's a reason that we value people who have saved up money and, and, and spent their time and sweat, you know, building something and then tokenizing it, right? Uh, it, it, you know, we've, we've, we've proved the concept and all of that stuff. Uh, so, so, it, so if we can, if we can demonstrate that with BISC and, 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 you know, make any kind of an example for people, I mean, that's a very high goal, but it really is sort of what I'm up to here and why I'm excited. Because again, I've just sort of been through all of the different incarnations of, uh, attempts to monetize open source. And I think they're all inelegant by, uh, and inefficient, um, by comparison to what we can do in the future. Very good. Let's leave it there, man. I think that, uh, future will tell. Certainly high hopes, certainly very interested in how this may roll out. And uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you for tuning into the Change Log this week. If you enjoyed the show, share it with a friend. Read us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors, Bugsnag, DigitalOcean, TopTal, and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing is by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music I've been hearing is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more episodes just like this at changelog.com or where you subscribe to podcasts. Thanks for listening.